Welcome to the Legal Eagles Radio Show, where we explore the legal issues of the day, especially in Connecticut, where we originate. We look at the criminal and civil justice system, both at the state and federal level, and we talk to lawyers, judges, and folks connected to law in a whole variety of ways. Overall, we want to explore the impact of legal decisions on how people live and the current issues of the day. Today, we welcome back to our WNHH radio program, Dan Clough a leading First Amendment and open government lawyer in the state. We last had Dan on the show, I believe it was, uh, I'm not even sure, some months ago. And as, and much has happened. That that much we do know. (laughs) A lot has happened. A lot has happened uh, on every level, which we will discuss in a few minutes. But we also have with us today uh, Paul Bass, uh, the editor of The Independent. And uh, he's going to join us to talk about Good morning, Paul. How are you? Uh, he's going to talk. We're going to talk about a particular issue first, and and then perhaps go on to others. Um, and let me tell you a little bit about Dan. Uh, he works for the law firm of McElroy, Deutsch, Mulvaney, and Carpenter in Hartford. And that's when he's not playing his jazz tunes, uh, which we are going to do at the end of the show as well. Uh, and he's long been a part of the Connecticut Council on Freedom of Information, and just became its president. Uh, and I must, I, I must, uh, all, all disclosure, I am a member of that council as well. Um, so we will definitely talk about the election and other things. But first, we want to talk about um, a story that we ran, that Paul wrote and has gotten widespread um, um, reaction about one of the independence reporters who was arrested earlier this month uh, because he was taking photographs of a police scene uh, in New Haven. Um, so, Paul, you want to fill us in on the latest? Yeah, it was around 4.10 at, uh, on December 6th. It was Tuesday, rush hour was starting. And outside the Mitchell Branch Library in New Haven on Whaley Avenue, Main Road, across mm-hmm. from a synagogue, mm-hmm. someone left two rice cookers. Rice cookers. Yeah, no, we didn't know that time. There was pressure cookers of some right, sort. I mean, right. there was a fear that it was like the Boston Marathon bombing. Mm-hmm. So the police uh, sealed off the scene. Mm-hmm. And a reporter from the Independent and I were headed over there anywhere from downtown, but we were downtown at the time. And I asked the reporter of ours who lives three blocks away to go take pictures and talk to people. His name is David Sepulveda. Mm-hmm. So he goes over and he went through um, Fountain Street. It's parallel to Willie Avenue. It's mm-hmm. a block from the scene at the closest point. Mm-hmm. And on the side he entered, they forgot to put up any police tape. So he just walked to the scene and it was eerie. It wasn't. It, was, right. it wasn't taped They had off. blocked mm-hmm. off Willie Avenue. This mm-hmm. was the corner of Willie Avenue and Harrison Street. And Harrison goes one block over to Fountain. Mm-hmm. He came in through Fountain. Now, Willie Avenue was blocked off. Rush hour was a mess. You had police tape. You had cops telling people to move away. Mm-hmm. So he just walks over. He thought, this is weird. He's looking for it. And then all of a sudden he looks to his right and there are these pressure cookers and there's no cops around. <laughs> so he thinks, gee, I don't want to blow up. So he rushes across the street. And he takes a few pictures. Now, the police see that and they think, oh, God, who's this crazy guy? You know, like, this right. could be the guy. He could be setting it off. And they yell. Oh, they don't know who he is. Right. They yell, get out of here. And he, they claim that he then crouched. So they thought that was a deceptive move. But he crouched because the cookers were on the ground. He wanted to, for his eye view. a good photo. So he says the second he heard them, he's 64 years old. The second he heard them, he starts backing up and yelling, I'm coming, I'm coming. They claimed it took a second or two. So they had to rush there and risk their lives. So they were mad. They grab him. The first thing out of his mouth is, I'm a reporter for the New Haven Independent. I'm covering this, and he has a big tag on his chest. Mm-hmm. And later when I talked to cops, they knew immediately he was a reporter. Mm-hmm. So the sergeant in charge was very upset, too. They are all pumped on adrenaline. So instead of asking him any questions, they rush him. They grab him and rush him a block away, and they throw him in a cruiser and handcuff him. 
and they take his possessions they, they on one side. Okay. No, mm -hmm. they put his possessions on one side and then on the site, but then they take his camera over to don't know what they're gonna do with it. And I arrived soon after and I watched the sergeant in charge walk up and down the block. And at first I heard only their side, so I went to the sergeant and I said, you know, I'm very sorry. We discovered that she was so mad, she said, this has to be criminal charges. I was thinking, wow, criminal charges? And the camera. So this is going on for 20 minutes or more. They won't let us talk to him in the cruiser. And then he's there for a half hour, actually. Did they take his camera? Yeah, yeah. So she's walking up and down the block with the camera. trying to figure out. I said, why do you have the camera? They said, well, you know, he committed a crime of interfering, and this is evidence we're going to show he took the picture, which I think violates a lot of But anyway, they, uh, so finally they get a call from downtown from one of the supervisors. They get that camera right back to him, and, but they, she insisted on making an arrest. So she goes back to talk to him, and I want to be there because there have been these experiences in New Haven where cops, high-ranking cops, including assistant chief, had to leave the department, had taken someone's camera because they didn't want them using it, and then they destroyed the evidence. So she said no. She threatened to arrest me if I got any closer. Threatened to arrest you? Yeah. So she goes in the car with him, and the first thing she says, okay, you have your camera back, but I need your memory card. And I was exactly where it was going to happen. And it didn't really matter because it was just pictures of these things. So finally, he said, luckily, he said no because she needs a warrant. So he said, well, can you show me the pictures? He said, sure, because he's handcuffed and he wants to get out of there. So he says the pictures, okay, and then they let him go, but they charge him. And, you know, I'm asking after he said, I'm asking the officer, I said, because the police chief had always told me and the police chief before that, the police chief before that, arrest is the last resort. You know, if we'll talk to someone, try to resolve a problem. And yeah, I was very, very upset about this. We didn't write about it right away because the big issue was the pressure cookers and I wanted to see what would happen. Then the guy writes a report full with perjury. Like one out now perjury, one said that we didn't know until much later he was a reporter, which oh. is just a lie. And the cops tell me right away he's a reporter. Um, they said we marked off everything with tape, but the reason it's not now that lie because they mentioned Willie Avenue, they didn't mention they didn't mark the area he came from. And it was just full of all that, so I'm very, very upset about it. And now there is an internal affairs investigation going on, but they haven't dropped the charges. We were in court yesterday. My guy faces up to a year in jail. The prosecutor seems pretty serious about it. Did they try to charge him with a felony? No, they charged him with, at first they might have, I think they talked it down. It was misdemeanor. Mm -hmm. It was interfering mm -hmm. by not responding in the split second, according to them. And, um, and trespassing, <laughs> even though there was, it wasn't marked off and it was a public street. So, Dan, tell us your reaction to this and what the organization has said ah. about it and your view. Well, the reaction is uh, we're very d disturbed by this. We, uh, uh, Connecticut Council on Freedom of Information, as you mentioned, I'm president. We issued a statement yesterday saying that we were deeply concerned about the way the New Haven Police Department handled this. Um, uh, there are uh, some pretty <clears throat> clear laws, mm -hmm. in particular the First Amendment. Uh, that <laughs> Oh, that. <laughs> that, uh, per, you know, the courts have repeatedly said, mm -hmm. repeatedly said, that all individuals, not just journalists, all people have the right to photograph police officers who are doing their work in public. Right? Mm -hmm. That is a First Amendment right. Now, there are limits, so no person can cross over uh, 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 and trespass onto a crime scene that has been clearly marked as And they're such. claiming that's what it is. They're not claiming right. they were shooting them. They say they say this is different because they've had terrible cases where they've taken the cameras and they've had that's a, right. they've lost lawsuits. Right. They make us agree. They claim in this case it had nothing to do with that. And my guy says there were no cops around. They were half block away. So they're saying it was trespassing and interfering when they told them to move. Well, and and uh, you know I've read the New Haven Independent stories, Paul's stories, and I think Sto uh, Paul is is um, presenting the views of both the police department and 
uh, his reporter as fairly and accurately as he can. And there may be some factual disputes here that have to be resolved. But one thing that seems clear is that nobody disputes that the police had not put up tape mm-hmm. um, at, at the location to which uh, mm-hmm. the reporter had approached the scene from. And the fact that he might have taken a, more than a split second to respond to a shout from a police officer more than half a block away is troubling. Okay, so uh, the so the so the police officer said thought that she was entitled, right, to to seize the camera. Well, it appears that way, and she wasn't, right? So, I mean, here's here's the next step. Mm-hmm. How should the police respond to a situation like this? Should they ratchet it up all the way to an arrest immediately, or are there things that they can do short of that? Mm-hmm. The police do not have to arrest; they have discretion. Correct, and um, and. They apparently denied that they had that discretion in this particular instance. That's mm-hmm. troubling. I don't know why they would say that. They certainly had discretion. At most, at worst, what we had here was a a, a misunderstanding um, mm-hmm. with a shout that wasn't clearly understood. And as soon as it was, the the uh, you know reporter immediately backed off. And and it seems to me that any objective person standing back and looking at this whole thing uh, would have realized that the best way to resolve it was with hey. You really need to back away from this scene um, and uh, please heed our warnings in the future. Um, The positive thing to say, though, uh, as it was reported yesterday, uh, again, in the in the independent, is that the uh, interim police chief, acting police chief, Mm -hmm. is uh, asked for an internal investigation into how this is handled. So I think that's it's positive to see that folks uh, top brass realize that the way this went down was not the way it ought to have gone down. And we need to reexamine how the police responded. So why do you think the police officer did not understand what is required to look at a camera with regard to a warrant? Why, why didn't it go through the officer's head, hey, I can't do this unless I have a warrant and I don't have a warrant? Because what essentially happens is she looks at the, at the photos, which is in, it, it, basically that's his defense. So she, right. ta- she removes his defense, right? Well, she potentially, that's what she wanted to do. And as Paul said, he, he said no. The reporter said no. So here, here's what the law says. Mm-hmm. When a person is arrested, mm-hmm. um, the police are entitled to take control of whatever items, uh, you know, are On the person's person. holding right. and hold them. Hold them. Hold them. Right. So, for example, if, if, if the reporter has a camera, the police can take the camera and put it in the trunk of a car, you know, the police car. They can hold it somewhere securely. Right, Hol- because ha- they don't have full possession of it. That's correct. Co- that's, right? Am I right? That's yes. correct. Okay. So, and I mean, and that's why you see in the in the movies, you know, when somebody is released on bail and the police have their possessions in a little bag and they give them back. So the right. police can hold the item. Correct. But what the officer here wanted to do was seize the camera, take the memory card, you know, take con- full possession and control of it. Yeah, she's and, walking up and down. With the, I was there. She walked up and down the avenue with it for half an hour. That's right. And that's not that's not a, a proper. If the police want to go inside the camera and look at it and take the memory card, um, uh, either they need the consent mm-hmm. of of the person or they need a warrant. They now, didn't claim she didn't do it without consent because she eventually went back in. One of our arguments is that he had handcuffs in. It's not exactly... Uh, <laughs> right, non coercive. That's right. There. Right, right. Yeah. <laughs> um. So, but let me, but if I can, just briefly, yeah. you asked about what was going through the officer's mind. Of course, I have no idea what was going through right. this particular. But shouldn't they be mind. trained? My, That's my, the key my point is they should be trained. The training is the key. The absolutely key here. 
And what our, my organization and other open government organizations around the country are doing is encouraging police departments to do a better job of training their officers about how to deal with members of the public, including journalists who are uh, have cameras. And mm-hmm. of course, in these days, when almost everybody has a, a cell phone with a camera, mm-hmm. the frequency mm-hmm. with which um, uh, a member of the public happens upon a police doing their business and take pictures has, has gone up, uh, you know, logarithmically. No. So there are simply more instances where this is going to happen. And training is absolutely the key word. We just need officers to have a better of understanding of what the, they can and can't to do uh, under the law when these circumstances arise. Under the four, Fourth Amendment. I mean, I think they need to get a little legal training, maybe. Yeah. Better yeah. legal training. Better legal training. Right. Yeah. Than they have. Right. That's right. Um, so... Um, what is an internal affairs investigation for our listeners who might not be savvy? About so there's that? a department in the um, police department that responds to either complaints from the public or requests from the chief. This was a request from the chief. Mm-hmm. Then they go and they interview everyone involved and gather all the evidence they can. And then they make a, 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 a report with findings about what general orders or laws may or may not have been broken. And they make recommendations to the chief and the police commission. Mm-hmm. So that could take a little while. Oh, it's going to take months. Yeah. Right, right. And meanwhile, the case is in court. Yeah, it's been continued to January. We were in court yesterday. And we don't know what the reporter is planning to do with regard to it He's yet. planning to plead not guilty without He's, a question. But, and he okay. has legal representation. Okay. He ah, has good. Good, good. good. Right. Yeah, but that was our next, that was our next question. Um, well, um, that's fascinating. Well, thank and, you so much for Dan's insights. They uh, guide uh, us when we're doing our job. Right. And uh, I, just, I just have one other, I, I have one other thought, and I'm just wondering out loud even whether I should raise it, but you put in the same sentence, the public and the press. Yes. And I would like to know if they're equal in this kind of situation. Does the press have a greater need than a member of the public to report this event uh, and therefore should be given perhaps additional consideration or is are they equal well the reason i've consistently talked about members of the public including the press is because under the first amendment the there is no distinction public mm-hmm. members of the public have the same rights as mm-hmm. members of the press in terms of the issues we've been discussing correct taking your camera out your cell phone photographing these things um and in fact the press um is is pretty careful when it's talking about these issues to say that it doesn't ask for, deserve, or seek, under the Constitution, special privilege. And I felt the same way, so we never did. One of our readers, who works in a law firm, sent us a statute that does actually have special protections for the press, which is why I think that was they put my that, recollection. Which is why I think they put that lie in the police report, because there was this instant panic there about you shouldn't do with a reporter. I actually think we shouldn't have special protections, because everyone's a reporter now. Mm-hmm. Well, that's and, true. And, that work, right. and what people get with their cell phones is crucial to the story. Right. Well, that's a huge change, though. That everybody can now yeah. photograph from their. So it becomes from, tricky if the police decide who's the press and who's not. If they don't like you, they say you're not. That's right, and we right. don't we don't want police drawing those kinds of distinctions. And and my point only is this: the First Amendment, the um the the right of uh of individuals to engage in free speech, which has been interpreted to include this photographing, mm-hmm. is a right of all Americans, all all persons mm-hmm. living in the United States, mm-hmm. not a right of journalists. So maybe the right. point relevant to the press here was that they claimed they were nervous. Who was this guy's going to blow off something? So, which makes sense for the first seven seconds. 
But if the guy immediately identifies himself as a reporter and you see it, that means you no longer have to worry that you have to handcuff them, arrest them. You know he wasn't there to blow up something. That's true. Right, and he had a camera in his hand. Yeah. He was taking a photo. And the irony is that he lives in that neighborhood. They police that neighborhood, and they supposedly have community policing, and he's a very well-known person in that neighborhood. He just got an arts award from the ah. community arts center. He's at every public event that the police are at. And, you know, it just tells you something about the state of policing that era That's part right. of town. That's right. That's right. Well, thank you. Thank, thank you, Paul, you, very thank much. You, this was fascinating. All right. Okay. Absolutely. So, um... Dan, let's uh, let's uh, make a let's sorte over to the uh, from the state to the federal level. Uh, thank you very much for your insight in, into this uh, issue. Um, so much has happened uh, with regard to uh, life in the United States, um, and yesterday uh, Donald Trump became. Our, our official president, 45th president of the United States. Uh, official president-elect. Elect. Sorry. Elect. Please, elect. let's Sorry. wait until January okay, 20th. I, okay, I forgot the elect. Okay. Um, <laughs> yes, that's right. That's right. right. Um, and um, so let's talk a little bit about um, a particular clause of uh, the Constitution uh, that you might be familiar with and that uh, I don't necessarily think all of our listeners are. And I certainly wasn't until it came up. Tell us about it. Article 1st, Section 9 of the Constitution. It's called the Emoluments Clause. Emoluments, okay. okay. One of the things that the Founding Fathers were very, very concerned about, they were drafting the, uh, uh, the Constitution, mm-hmm. was the influence that foreign powers might attempt to exercise over uh, the United States mm-hmm. by giving gifts. Okay? By giving so gifts, right. By okay. giving gifts, mm-hmm. basically, mm-hmm. to um, ingratiate themselves and, and get uh, Amer- uh, office holders in America to do things that were more in the interest of the foreign powers than in the interests of the United States of America. And there's a long, long history of the way the king's and princes and whatnot conducted themselves in Europe. Ah. Um, you can look at the relationship of the kings in uh, in uh, Britain and France to the parliament, where they would essentially bribe members <laughs> of parliament through giving them gifts right. in order to do induce them to do certain things. So the founding fathers were very conscious of this history, and they did not want um, uh, the, the American government and the elected representatives in that government to be susceptible to... Um, these foreign interests through gift giving. So the emoluments clause basically says that um, uh, no office holder in the United States, no federal office holder in the United States of America can accept emoluments from any foreign power. And emoluments is a broad term that includes, you know, gifts, special privileges, special honors, and so, uh, and so on and so forth. And now, for most of the history of uh, our our country, the clause has sat there collecting dust. People, it hasn't <laughs> been the subject of, of much litigation. Um, there was one interesting recent uh, situation when President uh, Obama, uh-huh. short, p- shortly upon um, taking office in 2009, was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize. Oh, yes. He wrote um, uh, to Congress uh, and the... Uh, ethics officers in the government to determine, could he accept that? Would (laughs) accepting the Nobel Peace Prize, because remember, it comes with a very substantial uh, monetary award, something, I don't know, a hundred thousand, a million, I I can't remember. It's a lot of money. Right. Okay. And the question was, could he accept that? 
was this a gift from a foreign government, Norway? Now, it turns out that, in fact, the, the organization, Nobel organization, is not a government organization. So he was able to accept the money. Mm-hmm. Um, hmm. But the, this question, this little uh, dust-collecting um, section of the, con- of the Constitution is front and center. Because we now have a president-elect who has more business interests around the world mm-hmm. than perhaps any other person who has ascended to the office of president in the United States. And we, I might add, he's also a president who has not shared his, uh, income, tax ret- his, his taxes. So we don't know specifically. What. That's right. We, but what we do know, uh, even despite the lack of transparency, is that he has he has uh, property interests, real estates, hotel, golf courses in all countries all around the country, all around the world, all around the world. Excuse me, mm-hmm. and and many of the of uh, the relationships he has are with uh, foreign entities that are substantially controlled by foreign governments. Right, okay? so. He, the, the, uh, the conflicts of interest that uh, a president-elect Trump uh, will have when he becomes president on January 20th cannot be understated. They are astounding. Now, the, he has said in his 140-character uh, Twitter feed that the law's on his side and the president can't have conflicts of interest, which reminds me of Richard Nixon standing up and saying, when the, I think um, during the famous interviews, that when the president does something, it, it's by definition legal. Legal, okay? right, right. And that, of course, is absurd. Now, there, there is a law, there's a statute was passed dealing with conflicts of interest that doesn't apply to the president. But right. the Emoluments Clause does. And what I want every reader to, to uh, appreciate is that the moment that he takes the oath of office mm-hmm. on January 20th, mm-hmm. he is committing what many, many, many people believe is an impeachable offense. When you say people, could you define that a little better? Well, certainly, uh, if you look at me- uh, members of the legal community, mm-hmm. that is, uh, law professors mm-hmm. um, on the right and left mm-hmm. who've studied this issue, mm-hmm. they have serious, serious questions about uh, his uh, conduct violating the Emoluments Clause. Uh, so students, if you will, of the Constitution... Right. Um, have have raised these concerns. Uh, think tanks on both sides of the aisle, so to speak, um, are concerned. Are concerned about mm-hmm. this issue. Mm-hmm. Uh, the only people who don't seem to be concerned are the congressional Republicans in Washington, who are losing their mind over the possibility that Hillary Clinton's foundation would pros, <laughs> pro, pro, uh, you know, present conflicts of interest. But when the president uh, elect uh, uh, on their team has these problems, they are scarily silent. Very silent. Yeah. Yes. So um, you define people as uh, uh, professors, uh, perhaps uh, those in the think tanks and so forth. What happens next? Is there any action that could take place? What's the process in Congress to investigate this? Well, um, so it's, it's also important to understand that this is largely a political issue. That is one that cannot be resolved through the courts, but only through an act of, of Congress. Okay. Act of uh, at Congress acting. Act. Okay. 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 And why do I say that? Um, first of all, the president of the United States, uh, you you can't sue the president um, 
But you said for in the acts. beginning. You said in the beginning, impeach. Yes, an impeachment is not a civil lawsuit. So oh. impeachment, of course, requires a vote of a majority of the House of Representatives, mm-hmm. um, and it's a it's akin to an indictment. Uh huh. Okay. So when you impeach somebody, what the Congress is saying is that we believe the there is reason to believe that the president has committed what the Constitution calls high crimes and or misdemeanors. Yes. That's the term in the impeachment clause. And if you get a majority of Congress uh, to make that, uh, to vote that way, as we saw during the Clinton administration, Mm -hmm. you have to go all the way back to the administration of Andrew Johnson uh, after the assassination of Lincoln Uh um, to get another actual impeachment vote. Then what happens is the matter goes to the Senate. And the mm-hmm. Senate sits as jurors, and there's a trial in the Senate. Okay, so the House starts it, and the Senate is the jury. Okay. Exactly. So someone on the House side would have to take, make the first move. Right. Now, is that likely, given the composition of the House? Answer, not no. right now. Not it's right. very hard to imagine right now that with the uh, control that the Republicans have, that they're going to jump to impeaching their own guy. Right. However... um. Uh, I remain, I was going to say I remain optimistic. Once, if the president-elect, upon assuming office, engages in conduct that becomes detrimental to the political well-being of congressional Republicans, Mm -hmm. in other words, if they begin to feel the heat from their own constituents, Mm -hmm. because their constituents begin to lose faith in the president and are uh, upset about his conduct, then... Uh, because the number one rule of being a political uh, official in Washington is getting reelected, right. their feelings might change. So I don't see any immediate prospect for an actual impeachment. Mm-hmm. The question is, how does the president conduct himself over the next several years? Does he bring the country together, or does he, um, does he push it further apart and exploit divisions and does he do things that leave the people who voted for him mm-hmm. realizing, oh, my God, why did we do this? Uh, and uh, did they then look to their local representatives to act as a check mm-hmm. upon the president? I think one of that's Yeah, that's fascinating. So this may take a while. Yes. Yes. Absolutely. Um, so one of the big issues during the campaign was uh, Donald Trump's refusal to turn over his income tax and so forth. Does that change when he becomes, um, he's now president-elect, but when he becomes the president, uh, is there a requirement as president to share uh, your income tax or not? There isn't any. There isn't any, there even isn't when you any. take uh, take office. That's right. Mm-hmm. Now, um, there are norms of behavior. Yes. One of the things that... that, that uh, has happened over the past eight years or so is that the way in which people have conducted themselves Mm -hmm. because there's an understanding that Mm -hmm. that is the way people ought to conduct themselves, even Mm -hmm. if there isn't a law that Mm -hmm. says so, Mm -hmm. those norms of behavior that have Mm -hmm. developed over decades have, have been shattered. So one of those norms is that all candidates for, um, the presidency, once they have uh, obtained the nomination of their party, have to release their returns. We've been mm-hmm. doing that for the past 40, 40, 50 years, I think, since, uh, since President Nixon. Mm-hmm. Okay? 
So those, those norms have been shattered. Mm-hmm. The pres- And then upon becoming president, our presidents have released their returns. Right, that was my recollection, yeah. Yes, but they've done that not because there's any legal requirement to do yeah. so, but because that is the nor- acceptable norm of behavior. Donald Trump is the master of shattering norms. Mm-hmm. He simply doesn't care about the way things have been done. So I do not see any reason to believe that he will uh, release tax returns uh, during his term in office. Mm-hmm. There's been much discussion uh, on a whole variety of levels um, about what types of actions he might take once he gets into office, and there's been concern about his uh, statements regarding documented and undocumented uh, people in the United States and different states. And it's made me wonder whether or not um, and states have rights too. States, uh, the states of the United States, the sure. individual states have rights too. They have laws too. They typically have an attorney general who carries out those laws. And not typically, they do have. Yes. Um, so what might uh, states attorneys, attorneys general do uh, when faced with um, possible attacks or concerns on, the, on a particular subject? Well, they can do what de Tocqueville noted in uh, in his uh, famous uh, observations after touring the country in the early 1800s. He, they can do what Americans do best, file lawsuits. Right? <laughs> I mean, uh, this, is what, this is what Americans do. Whether that's a good or bad thing, I don't, don't know. For me personally, as a lawyer, I suppose I make my living. I'm conflicted on the issue. But, but let me be a little bit more serious about it. Um, rightfully or wrongfully. What, uh, what we saw throughout the, the Obama administration was mm-hmm. Republican attorney generals effectively use the courts and litigation to press political positions mm-hmm. that were um, uh, you know, challenging the president's exercise of authority. Mm-hmm. What's sauce for the goose is sauce for the gander. gander right. okay? And uh, I think that uh, attorney generals under a... Um, who hold office during the uh, Trump presidency can do the same thing. They can challenge his actions. They can challenge the actions of of uh, members of his cabinet. That and by that I mean the various executive mm-hmm. agencies, whether mm-hmm. it's the EPA, whether it's the Department of Defense, whether it's the Department of the right. Interior. Because we don't know what's going to happen to those major departments given their their new leadership. Right. Well, and we're beginning to get some sense. I mean, Aren't for example, we? when 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 Trump uh, appoints uh, Rick Perry to <laughs> be to laugh. the well, it, you have to laugh. Otherwise, you would all the only thing you could do is cry. Right. I mean, this is a man who in uh, the debates um, uh, the first time around said that he would abolish the Department of Energy. Right. He right. would abolish it. And right. now Trump is putting him, in, in, you know, to head that agency. So. Uh, I, I, I find uh, it, it, it depresses me greatly to yes. think about what the folks that the president-elect is appointing will do with their agencies. But to answer your question again directly about what attorney generals can do, is they can use litigation as mm-hmm. a check. And again, this is something that I, that I think, uh, again, I'd want to, love to, em- to emphasize to all your readers. So the president controls the executive branch. Mm-hmm. At the moment, the Republicans control both houses of Congress. Correct. We are going to have to rely more than ever on the third branch of government 
the judicial branch mm. and, the, and the judges who are appointed for life to insulate them from uh, immediate political pressures. We're going to have to rely on those, that third branch of government to do its job and to make sure that the rule of law does not become just a few words in this country, but ha- continues to have real meaning. They are going to have to exercise their power to ensure that this president operates within, mm. not above, the laws of the United States. And you mean on the federal and state level? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Both levels. Are you optimistic? I am, op- I am optimistic that the courts will do their job and will rein in um, uh, clear and sort of obvious uh, violations of the law uh, mm-hmm. by, by the administration. And I'm not talking necessarily about criminal acts. I'm mm-hmm. simply saying if, if they act beyond their authority mm-hmm. the, under the law, I, am, uh, I feel pretty good about the courts acting as a good check. As a good check, yes, yes. But that's, of course, always difficult to measure. It's not difficult to measure when it happens, but it takes a while. Yes. So there's this, all these time lags, right. you know, in a society that lives for the second and moment on the internet. That's right. <laughs> but we also have to realize there are things courts can't check. So mm-hmm. the, go- the president is the commander in chief. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, right. Donald Trump will have at his fingertips enormous power, power to send troops into, uh, into areas around the globe, power to uh, order cruise missiles to be launched against various targets. And the, that's the kind of act that courts are not well positioned to check. Um, and the thought of him making those decisions terrifies me. Yes, yes, it's just, it is stunning, yes. Um, considering his prior television performances. Yes. <laughs> I think your fired will have a completely different meaning in a prison Trump presidency. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Um, so let's turn to the state of Connecticut for just a second um, and uh, talk a little bit about uh, Governor Malloy's uh, recent uh, pension deal. Yes. Um, which was pretty big and he made with the unions. Uh, is it constitutional, do you think? It depends on how it is ultimately approved. Mm-hmm. And this tell, is, tell us a little bit about it first. So this is a really important issue that arises frequently in the context of anything that's done through the collective bargaining process mm-hmm. you know, through, with mm-hmm. the, you know, um, with the unions in the state. So Connecticut has a law that mm-hmm. provides for collective bargaining on on wages and also pension benefits, mm-hmm. and it's under the that law that the the uh, governor has been negotiating this very, very important pension deal. Mm-hmm. You know, Connecticut faces a disaster, an absolute financial disaster if it doesn't come up with a way to uh, address the uh, pension funding uh, problem. So the, the reason that there's a, a question about this is mm-hmm. that the law says that you present the deal that the governor and the, leg- uh, the unions have made to the con- to the legislature, and it says if they don't reject it within thirty days, it becomes the law. Now, anybody who's taken basic civics education in fourth grade knows that the way you make a law is by having a majority 
of the House and the Senate vote in favor of it. Mm-hmm. The, in Connecticut, a collective bargaining contract, including this kind of pension deal, can become law in the absence of a vote. And hmm. that's why there's a question about whether that is constitutional. Can something become law when there is a, a, a failure or a, a, absence? an absence of a vote? And mm-hmm. the technical term in Connecticut is, is called deemed approval. So if, if, the, if the deal is presented and it's not rejected, it is considered to be deemed approved. So uh, lawyers would say that what the, the, the legislature has done is delegate the authority to make binding law to the governor. Hmm. And there's a very big question mark in my mind whether the Constitution permits the lawmaking body, the legislature, to say, yeah, you know what, we'll let you make the law, Mr. Governor, and just give us a a sort of check, you know, and if we don't have any problem with it, it's okay. So this has not been resolved, obviously. It could wind up in the courts. It could. I can tell you that I know the leadership on the Senate side, Senator Fasano, and Mm -hmm. I'm sure this is also true of of, uh, uh, Themis uh, Claritas Mm -hmm. as well, are arguing that what you need you need an up or down vote. Right. You have an to actual have a vote. vote. Yes. On such an important yes. issue as this, you need an up or down vote. Um, on the Democratic side, I think there are some folks who would prefer to use the if we say nothing, it becomes law approach. And I honestly don't know what will happen. I know I think what should happen is an up or down vote. Yes. I think that's the way democracy works best. Right. Now, one of the, uh, speaking of democracy, um, how is your We the People convention coming along? We discussed that in a prior show, uh, and uh, remind us of, of its ins and outs. So I wrote a, a, uh, an op-ed right. um, a few months back that argued that Connecticut should have a state constitutional convention, um, but a people's convention, yes. right? And, and the idea was that uh, people from around the state would come together and they would basically do a thorough review of the state constitution and make suggestions about ways it ought to be updated. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the constitution dates back to 1818. There have been some changes along the way. But the question is, can we make this a truly 21st century document? Mm-hmm. And ha- are the things that we've learned from the way government operates over the past uh, you know, century plus that suggest we should make changes mm-hmm. in, in uh, the Constitution? So I wrote about that, and I got very interesting feedback from people saying, what a great idea to Dan. You're absolutely out of control. You're nuts to even suggest this. Um, <laughs> So, and I, and I like getting, you know, it's good to get pushback. So right. I continue to talk to people around the state who are interested in the idea. Uh, I can tell you there's not going to be some We the People convention immediately. This is something that takes time. Right. What I was trying to do is plant a seed, yeah. and I continue to water it, and uh, we'll, time will tell whether it sprouts or uh, just dies. Are you still thinking of running for public office? I am, mm-hmm. absolutely. We discussed this the last time around. Mm-hmm. Uh I had said at that time, I very much, no decisions would be made until after the 2016 election. We're now after the 2016 election. That's correct, right. Uh, That's why I'm asking. (laughs) And and I anticipated that 
um, we would begin to see the beginnings of a game of musical chairs. Oh, uh, you yes. know, that is people would begin, uh, people who are interested in running for higher office, um, would begin to make their intentions known. Mm-hmm. And sometimes that means that they would have to vacate the, the office they're in mm-hmm. or, or if they ran mm-hmm. and one that would mean the office that they're currently holding would be open. So we're beginning to see that game of musical chairs start. And, uh, we've got two years, which is a long time. Uh-huh. So I, I continue to watch the game and, um, talk to people around the state about whether I have anything meaningful to offer uh-huh. the people. Um, and, uh, Stay tuned. Stay tuned. Okay. Well, speaking of process, uh, I wrote a story last week uh, uh, that uh, came uh, out of the 12th uh, District and State Senator Ted Kennedy uh, about mm. decertification and uh, the, the, the CERT, uh, the ECERT, rather, yes. E-certification, um, and how that passes, the last-minute passage of that. That would fit into your general thoughts, right, of problems in <clears throat> the operation of government? Uh Absolutely. So just to remind your readers, uh, it was, mm-hmm. this is a terrific story where uh, Senator uh, Ted Kennedy um, uh, from Branford uh, ex- complained, rightfully so, about a process known as emergency certification. It's right. ESERT. And it's a label that's, that leadership in the House and Senate can stick on a bill mm-hmm. so that it bypasses the normal public hearing process and mm-hmm. vetting process and sort of goes straight to a vote. Mm-hmm. Right. And the idea was, when it was created, is that there are certain kinds of bills. Let, let's say you have a hurricane or some terrible you know, natural uh, event, mm-hmm. and you need to, to have a, an authorizing bill quickly. Mm-hmm. for aid or mm-hmm. a, a, a terrible blizzard, and you just need to respond immediately. Uh, so that's what this ESERT was designed for. But what's happened over the years is now that it's used for everything, including the budget. budget. Yes. And that is a terrible way to make a budget. You know, the way a budget happens these days is that leadership negotiates it, and with maybe, maybe 24 hours before a vote, rank-and-file legislators get a copy of a 900-page document and they're supposed to then decide whether to vote yay or nay. And Senator Kennedy said, quite, um, I think rightfully, that's a ridiculous way for government to work. So he wants to reform this emergency certification process so that at least in the budget context, uh, rank and have, file can have an intelligent discussion. Right, and know yeah. what they're voting on. That's right. Right, right. And also wanted to change the way which, you know, the other side of midnight, you know, not losing a whole bill for a whole session and just, you know, letting it carry over over a, a two-year period as they do in Congress so that, you know, you, there's a waste of time up there. I mean, this terrible is... Terrible waste of time. Terrible yeah. waste of time. You think any of that has a shot? I do. Mm-hmm. I do. I, I think that there is a, a growing sense on both sides of the aisle. Both I mean, sides. Oh, that's good. Uh, it's, it's interesting. I posted your story on mm. my on my blog about oh. Senator Kennedy. Thank and I you. very quickly mm-hmm. got an email from a, a top uh, Republican senator, state mm-hmm. senator, saying, hey, Dan, we've been talking about this issue for, for uh, years. Hmm. And in truth, he's absolutely right. So the Republicans have been complaining about ESER. But what I'm hearing now is many Democrats rank and file complaining about this as well. And that's why I think there is uh, a, a, a better chance that uh, it will be something focused on this session. Right. Yes. 
That, yeah, well, that would be interesting. That would, yeah. be, that, that would be transformative. It would be transformative, and it's a good thing for democracy. Mm-hmm. A good thing for democracy. Right. Okay, uh, we, we have just a little bit of time left, uh, but I think we, and so I think we should turn to music. Uh, since we need something, something you and I both love. Yes, we both love, and and, and I think we need a, a sense of uh, you know uplifting. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> as we go into 2017, 2017, right. 2017, 2017. Sorry. Um, so um, we tell us a little bit about your albums, uh, "The Lawyer Is a Champ," uh, and others, and and we'll play a tune. Well, thanks for asking about them. So I am uh, an incredibly mediocre piano player. Um, but I love jazz and, uh, given my mediocrity, I could never have made a living as a musician. (laughs) But what I'd like to do, um, is use what little musical talents I have to make these funny songs. You are underestimating your skill set. Well, I I appreciate that. Um, my mother says the same thing, but she's (laughs) my mom. So, but what I've done, I've put out two albums over the past, uh, decade. Uh Okay. And they are a collection of legal satires. Mm-hmm. So I love the great American songbook, you know, Laura, yes. uh, Rogers and Hart, Gershwin. And what I do is take classic tunes, mm-hmm. uh, classic American songbook tunes, and I rewrite the lyrics in a way that makes fun of lawyers. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's me singing and playing the piano. That's great. And um, my latest album, The Lawyer is a Champ, really a lawyer is a tramp. Um, uh, <laughs> wonderful, just a funny, uh, great tune. All profit, all proceeds from the sale of this, I donate to legal aid. So this is not about this is not a profit making venture mm-hmm. for Dan right. Clow. Right. Uh, whatever I get goes to legal aid. So uh, maybe we could hear a tune. Um, uh, do we have? I've got the judge on a string, uh, ready to rock and roll, so to speak. I've got the judge on a string. Wrapped around my finger She'll do anything that I please What a court, what a case I can't lose And the jury I bought For a thousand dollars And that verdict is in the bag What a court, what a case I love the law Law is a beautiful thing As long as you hold a string You'd be a silly so-and-so If you should ever let it go I've got the judge on a string Wrapped around my finger She'll do anything that I please What a card, what a case I love the law <laughs> That's my dream, to uh, be able to bribe a jury to do <laughs> <laughs> Good luck in Connecticut. That's right. (laughs) Well, thank you, Dan, once again for joining us in our studio in New Haven today to give us your very fine insights into life and law in Connecticut and elsewhere. Thanks so much for having me, Marsha. It's always a pleasure. Thank you for being us. And for our listeners, uh, go to the New Haven Independent.org website. You can get a podcast of this broadcast. You can listen to a whole wide variety of shows that the station produces each day. And listen to some jazz. Absolutely. What a card, what a case. I love the love.